Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, say amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this verse. We thank you for this truth. We ask that you would help us as we study it today, that you would give us wisdom. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take a seat. I want to preach on this verse, and my title is simply this, No Condemnation. That's a fitting title, amen? A young man who was the son of the friend of Tsar Nicholas I back in the 1700s. He became the Tsar's accountant, the accountant of his royal treasury. He was to handle the Tsar's money. He was to be a good steward of his things, and so he would get the gold. And over time, what happened was this young man developed a gambling habit. And in order to cover his own debts, he began to borrow from the king's treasury. Now, one day, after many months, an auditor showed up to the office of the accountant and said, we are going to have an audit. I need all the books. Uh, and by the morning, I need you to show, an, give an account of where all the money is at. That night, he, with a good bit of stress, sat down and counted his own debts and realized after he had done the math that there was absolutely no way that he would ever be able to pay the debt that he had stolen, that he owed the czar. There in despair, Looking at his paper, looking at that amount, right underneath the amount, the young man wrote, a great debt. Who can pay? He then picked up a revolver and determined that at the stroke of midnight, he would end his life. In his depression, he fell asleep. Tsar Nicholas, that night, of all nights, dressed in plain clothes, decided to take an account of all of his workers' lodgings and offices. And he saw an, uh, a light on in his accountant's office, and the light should have been off. He walked into the office, and there on the table was the revolver, the open books, the missing total, and the cryptic note. It was all clear in plain sight. I haven't even got there yet. <laughs> he took his pen and he, and he wrote something on, on the, uh, under the man's note. The man woke up after many hours of sleep, remembered everything, grabbed the revolver, stood up, put the revolver to his head and determined it was time to end everything. He looks at the paper and he sees his note, a great debt, who can pay? Then he sees the name Nicholas. And he, as he studies the signature, he realizes that Nicholas had actually been into his room and was actually willing to pay. He put the revolver down, and the next morning, a bag of gold showed up with the exact amount of money that he owed the king. 
You see, the gospel begins first with bad news, that we have a debt that we cannot pay. If you hear a gospel message, you're sitting in a church, and they never talk about the bad news, you're just not getting the whole gospel. But the gospel doesn't end with bad news. If you ever hear the gospel, you're hearing a message, and they don't get to good news, you haven't heard the whole gospel. You with me? A great debt, who can pay? The good news, Christ. Signs it in his own blood. Pays the debt that we cannot pay on our own. He is the one who has the right to condemn us. But in his grace, there is no condemnation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we see this statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to give you four truths about this statement. Number one, this statement is logical. Number two, this is this 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 announcement that there is no condemnation is current. Number three, it's absolute. And number four, it's exclusive. Let me break it down. I want to break those four points down by looking at four different words. First is the word therefore. Somebody say therefore. Therefore, therefore is a conjunctive adverb. Remember English class? It's, it's actually a word that we don't use very much. It's a common word in my own thinking because it's all through the Bible. But as I was thinking about it, I was like, I was thinking we don't really in common English use the word therefore. Like, I'm not, not like, hey, uh, 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 Angelo, I'm having dinner at my house tonight. Do you want to come over? And Angelo says, well, I would love to, but I have some other pre-existing commitments. Therefore, I'm unable to come over for dinner. Like, we just don't talk like that. But therefore is a very important word in the Bible. Therefore connects a previous statement, a previous reality, I've got other commitments, with the conclusion, with the concluding idea. Therefore, I cannot come over. So the statement that is introduced from this therefore is this statement, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That statement is a result of preceding arguments. So as we're introduced to this statement, we've got to ask the question, what is the preceding argument or what is the preceding statement that is leading us to this conclusion? Some have posed that it is verse 25 of the previous chapter. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Since I serve the law of God with my mind, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't think that previous verse, that previous statement is enough on its own to lead the Apostle Paul to such a colossal conclusion. Romans chapter 8 is magnificent. 
It has been called the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of faith, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, the highest peak in a range of mountains. What has led to Romans chapter 8 verse 1, or more broadly, what has led to Romans chapter 8? I believe that Romans 8.1, this idea, this statement, this conclusion, is actually the result of not just one verse preceding it, but seven chapters. I think why Romans 8 is such a good chapter is because it is a conclusion of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 7. What we're doing is we're taking this whole thing that is the Christian faith and we're cracking it open and we're seeing uh, what's in the inside. Some months ago I was in New Mexico and I bought a rock for my boys and we haven't yet to crack it open. It's one of these rocks where you know that when you crack it open, there's crystals on the inside. That's why you bought the thing. I mean, at some point, I need to take a little wedge to it and a hammer and crack the rock open so that we can see the inner crystals. In some ways, I think Romans 8 is just that. It is the weight of Romans 1 through 7 crushing down onto the point of a wedge. And the point of the wedge is Romans 8.1, cracking open the faith for us. And as we crack the faith open, what does it look like? What is it, what's on the inside? What is the very core of our faith? You see, some people would, would think that as we crack open religion, that we would find a therefore, which leads to something like this. There is, therefore, a God who will judge based on how well you've done. That is the core of somebody's faith. I've heard so many people liken uh, God's judgment to a balance scale, and, and your bad is put on one side, and your good is put on the other, and at the end of the day, there is a God. This is the core of their faith. There is a God who will look at the scale and determine whether or not you are forgiven. If what you've done good exceeds the bad you've done, then God will forgive the bad. Is that the core of our faith? Absolutely not. Others believe that as they crack open religion, there is a God who is angry with them. They would believe that by the time we get to the inner core of our faith, Romans 8.1, we would see there is therefore a God who is frowning upon us because we are such screw-ups. Is that the core of our faith? Others, the outlook is even more bleak. There is therefore no God. There is therefore no hope. There is therefore no eternity. There is therefore no place where I can put my guilt, no place where I can put my shame, no final affirmation of me, no judge who can ever acquit, uh, uh, acquit me. Tim Keller once told a story of a, uh, a, a man who had a dream, and 
this man was an atheist, by the way, and in his dream, he's walking around and, and he's looking at all of these people, but for him, they're not just people, they're judges. I'm looking at a bunch of judges right now. Everybody's a judge. Everybody's condemning me. Everybody's got thoughts of me. Everybody's evaluating me. And so he said in his dream, he's working hard to try to add up. He's working hard to try to win every single judge's approval. And it's exhausting. Because as soon as he's won the approval of one judge, he steps outside his door and there's a hundred others. Every time he meets a new person, it's a new judge. Why is it that you can't be honest with people? Have you ever thought about that? It's because you're trying to win their approval, that's why. And if you're really honest with them, you will be judged forever and you can't live with yourself. Everywhere we look, we see people. We've got to win their approval. Judges. And it is an endless spiral. It is an endless rat race of trying to people please. And we are, by the way, I don't care how bad you think you are, we are people pleasers at our core. We really are. Why is it that we put on a certain way? Why is it that we act a certain way? trying to win approval. Why is it that you go someplace and you feel judged for being underdressed? Or you don't make as much money as somebody else, or your shoes are dirty, or your house is not as nice as somebody else's house, and so you're embarrassed when somebody walks in. Condemnation everywhere. Trying to keep up, always, always never, uh, never, never good enough. Trying to be good enough, never good enough. So this atheist then, who's having this dream about judges everywhere, he said he finally in his dream, he makes it to the throne room of heaven. And there in the throne room is a, is a, is a, is a big throne, a big chair. And he says to himself, if somebody is seated on that throne, and if I can get the approval from the one who sits on that throne, well then, Everything will change for me. I'll have ultimate approval, final affirmation. I'll be acquitted by the greatest judge there is, and so all of these lesser judges won't matter. But remember, he's an atheist. So in his dream, he, he, he looks at the throne, and the throne is empty. Nobody there. And so in despair, he leaves the throne room of heaven, and he says, and so I'm, I'm left. I'm left to deal with all of the... All, all of these people, all of these judges, that's all I have. I'll never have affirmation. I, I have no place to put my shame. I have no place to put my guilt. You see, I think many people, as they, as they ask themselves, what is the very core of religion? It's bleak. An angry God. A God that may forgive me. Hope, like the lowercase h, hope, like the kind of hope that you might win the lottery hope. I hope that God will forgive me. Or for some, no God at all. Nothing left then but condemnation. 
as we see the book of Romans laid out in front of us, we see Romans chapter 1 through 7, the weight of which leads us to Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that cracks open the inner sanctuary of our faith and what we discover is really good. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The core of our faith. That's amazing. Amen? Come on, I'm going to need some amens. I'm going to need some feedback today. We're in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, all right? Help me out. Let's just walk through Romans 1 through 7. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Since... God's eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived and ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, we are without excuse. God is a holy God. Since God is a holy God and since we are without excuse, since Romans 1, 25, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the, uh, or I'm sorry, since 1, 25, since humans have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Since we are fallen human beings, rebels against this God, since, chapter 2, verse 5, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed, meaning the condemnation comes not from us ultimately. It doesn't come from your friends. It doesn't come from a pastor or a preacher. The condemnation we're talking about comes from God himself. Since chapter 23 verse, or chapter 3 verse 23, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Since chapter 3 verse 28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Since chapter 4 verse 3, Abraham himself believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness since, chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his, his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since, chapter 5, verse 18, one trespass, one trespass led to condemnation for all men and in the same way, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Since chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is, somebody say it, eternal life for all who believe. Since chapter 7, verse 4, we died to the law through the body of Christ so that we may belong to him who has been raised from the dead. Since chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, we can give thanks to God through Jesus Christ our Lord because he is delivering us from this body of death. Since Romans 1 through Romans 7, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's my point. Christianity is a logical faith. It's a logical faith. It's a factual faith. This is not a whimsical idea. 
No condemnation is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky religion. A God who would have this kind of love toward us is not a fairy tale kind of God. But our religion is reasonable. Meaning Paul took seven chapters. And I don't, I don't remember how long we've been in Romans. Since January maybe? We've been in Romans for months to get to this core. To lay out this argument, leading to this declaration, facts based on facts, which lead us to this conclusion. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, why is that conclusion so good? Well, the second big word I want to look at is the word now. And I want to show you that this conclusion is a current reality for you, the believer. He says, there is therefore, everybody say, now. Now, no condemnation. Some people might think of this in terms of the future. Like, oh, I believe that maybe, you know, in the future that that God would... uh, uh, acquit me, that God would forgive me of my sins, but God is displeased with me right now because of my current reality, because of the things I've done. I know that he will eventually wipe it clean. I know I'll eventually get a new body and I'll be okay then, but now I am actually under God's condemnation. What he's telling us is that this is a current reality. This is a new era in which the believer is brought into, an era of no condemnation. Yes, it's eschatological, meaning in the future one one day, this is going to be a reality, but our eschatological future is, has been broken into our present. Are you with me? Like we now according to Ephesians, have every single spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. What this tells us is that we can trust God. Now, you can trust God. Meaning God is not going to hold anything good back from his people. There is nothing ultimately for your good and for his glory that he will keep from you. Church, if it's for your good, it, it, it will come, and we can trust him with the highs and with the lows, with the good news and with the bad news. God will never be malicious to his children. This is now our current reality. Others would say, well, it's a, it's a past reality, but it's not now. Meaning, he, God removed my sin from me when I got saved. He forgave me when I became a Christian. But man, I've screwed up so much since then. I can't imagine that he's still, this, this, these many years later or months later or days later, still forgiving. That he still would look at me with no condemnation. And this, this actually is, is kind of a, it's very much so a human logic kind of argument. Meaning, like, you know, if I help you out, let's say, let's say that you have a BGE bill that needs to be paid. Amen? Somebody? <laughs> I got one. If anybody wants to help, let's turn this around. You help me out. 
all right? And you pay my BGE bill. I don't even say BG Andy. I don't even give him the correct title. Biggest gangsters ever. Uh, ever. That's, if you work for BG and E, I'm sorry. I apologize. You, you pay off my BG and E bill, and you say, hey, I caught you up, but the rest is on you. Good luck. You see, a lot of people approach our Christianity that way. They believe that at our conversion that God wipes our slate clean, or at our baptism, God wipes our slate clean, but the rest is on you. See, if you screw up, you know, if you take advantage of his grace, well, shoot, he's already given you so much. What, do you think he's going to keep forgiving? This was a movement that was actually very popular in the early church. Uh, they, they actually would delay baptism. It was, a, it was a heretical movement. They would delay baptism with the belief that baptism would wash away original sin and your sins up until that point, but after your baptism, good luck. It's on you. So they would delay baptism until death. Constantine, for example, wasn't baptized until right before he died for that reason. But what's Paul's reality? You see, the apostle Paul was baptized when? Shortly after conversion. And we know that Paul wasn't perfect. He, never, he, he don't, doesn't claim anywhere to be perfect. As a matter of fact, he just said in, that he's still a Romans 7 kind of Christian. That since his baptism, these many, many years later, Paul is still wrestling with sin. He's still falling into sin. Yet, yet no condemnation is still his reality. Coming out of Romans chapter 7. Church, this is still your reality. You fall into some kind of grievous sin. You have so much shame. You say to yourself, I can't believe I did it again. And you hear the voice of Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is this not good news? Somebody. This is good news. It's current. And think about how this changes us. How does this change us? Well, one way that it changes us is we now can know the difference between godly conviction and condemnation. You know, because of sin's trauma, I don't think we always know the difference between godly conviction and condemnation. Meaning we are so used to the weight of guilt and shame that when a brother or sister in Christ comes up to you and confronts you on some sin issue, you think you're being condemned because it like triggers something in you. And you're like, oh, that's condemnation. When in reality, it was grace. It was God's grace to you. Because you're not perfect. This doesn't lead us to perfection. It leads us to a place where we can actually receive correction and keep our head held high. We can understand then that God disciplines his children. There are times that your sin 
provokes God's discipline in your life, but His discipline is not condemnation. Are you with me? This allows us to have aspects of, of our prejudice or racism or favoritism or classism pointed out. Why do people get so defensive over these things? We're not perfect. We're defensive because we're so used to condemnation. And so everything for us becomes condemnation. And we can't ever take correction. The church talks to you about like church attendance or showing up or loving each other or some aspect of community life together. It's not condemnation. Are you with me? Let me, give, let me try to give you an example of this. I say it's trauma, all right? Past trauma. I'm not trying to be cute and modern and hip by using the word trauma. But I, uh, but I am onto something here, all right? I was feeling good one day drinking a Pepsi, which is rare for me, all right? So you know I'm like in a celebratory mode. <laughs> and I get into my car, screw my Pepsi lid on, set it in the cup holder, turn my car on, immediately start driving the down the road. And as soon as I start driving, I hear a, a hissing sound. And I'm like, oh, here we go. It's the engine. And so I, st I immediately start ruling things out. You know how this goes? Like I turned off the radio to make sure it wasn't, the hissing sound wasn't coming from the radio. I turn off the AC. The hissing only gets louder. It's still there. And I am so convinced that I'm, I'm already thinking through like, okay, how am I going to afford a new car? How much can I get a crazy raise for this guy? You know what I'm saying? Like I'm going through all the list of things. And, um, and I pull into a gas station because I don't want to be driving with the hissing in the engine. And I turn the car off, and the hissing is still going. And I look down, and I realize what it was. I didn't screw my, the lid on my Pepsi tight enough. And it was hissing. Sometimes things are as bad as they appear. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes things aren't as bad as they appear. And look, church, when I get correction, when you get correction, when, when, even when we get criticized over something. See, the, the, my past trauma of dealing with junky cars, all right, that sound triggered my mind and said, it's got to be worst case scenario. And our past trauma of sin and shame and guilt, every time something comes along that even sounds, reminds us of condemnation, we immediately think it's condemn condemnation when it's not. It's grace. Are you with me? So this current reality changes us and allows us to live a new way. Third, why is it so good? Why is no condemnation in, for those who are in Christ Jesus? Why is it so good? Third, it's absolute. Here's what I mean by this. Third big word, the word no. Somebody say no. no. Somebody say no, no, no. The word no right here in verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation. In the original language, that's a double negative. All right, we don't really have anything like this in the English, but it's two no's put together. It's not just one no. It's a compound word. 
One theologian puts it this way. He says that this is essentially saying that not only, that we are not only, I'm trying to think how to say this without saying not, uh, without saying not too many times. <laughs> not only are we not, are you with me? Not only are we not in the state of condemnation now, but we never can be. It's impossible. There is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning it is not only current, but it's also our future reality. It is our eternal reality, meaning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so utterly changed our state with God that condemnation is impossible. Not because of God's inabilities. Oh, God is able to do anything. Not because of God's inabilities or because of our abilities, but because of God's ability to save completely. Someone says, well, well I'm feeble and I'm, I'm weak. What if I sin in such a way that I deserve condemnation? Well, Christian, you do deserve it. We're not saved because we don't deserve it. We're saved because Christ took what we deserve on the cross. Past, present, and future. All of our sin. Sins that we've had committed. Sins that we are committing. Sins that we will commit. As well as our sin in Adam. All was taken upon the cross. Someone might say, well, I'm not strong enough to have this kind of confidence before God. Listen, the totality of your vindication is not in the strength of your own confidence in your life, but it's in the strength of Christ's claim on your life. Jesus says, she's mine. I bought her with a price. I own her. That's why we have this kind of confidence. We're not being braggadocious. We're not being arrogant. We're being confident in our Savior. Are you with me? Let me put it like this. The utter absence of our condemnation before God is not because of my perfections, but because of Christ's perfections. Christ is one eternally with God. Before all things began, Christ was present. In eternity past, Christ is one with the Father. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, Trinity, holy, 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 three in one, thrice holy, meaning eternally holy God. That's who Jesus is. And when Jesus took on human flesh, his holiness did not diminish. He had no stain of sin on him. Jesus perfectly followed the law of God. Jesus obeyed and loved the Father every second of every minute of every day. And Christ, when he died, he, he took our sin as the sin bearer, which might lead you to think, oh, well, then he did become stained with sin. No, church. He is a sufficient Savior. He swallowed up our sin and death. He got rid of our sin and death. How do we know that? Because three days later, God rose Jesus from the dead as a sign that he was perfect, that God is happy with his sacrifice. 
This whole new state that we are living in is all about Jesus' perfections. And it's all about us then turning from our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ, which is something that all of you are to do today. And if you're not a Christian, I welcome you to place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. How do you become a Christian? Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Believe. Receive. And with that, you die to yourself. The Spirit raises you from the dead, and you are placed in Jesus Christ. And that leads me to my last point. My last point is this, that this promise, promise is exclusive. It's exclusive. It said, he says right there, verse 1, for those who are in Christ. You see, Christianity is an inclusive invitation that comes with an exclusive promise. The King James Version, if you are reading from the King James, there's an additional phrase here at the end of this verse which says, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. You don't see that in the NIV or the ESV or other modern translations. Why is that? I'm not going to get into all the textual criticism about it. Basically, what, that, what it is is that the King James was based on a later manuscript, and then after the King James was, was, was translated, earlier manuscripts were found, and the earlier manuscripts did not have that phrase in them, all right? So nobody's like deleting things from the Bible on their own. Probably what happened was that at some point a scribe added that phrase into verse 1. Are you tracking with me? Is this too much? My point, though, is this, is some people would look at that phrase and say, well, that phrase is very important. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so the fact that we don't see that in verse 1 is problematic. And I would say this, it's not problematic for two reasons. One, well, three reasons. One, it's, I don't think it was original. Secondly, we see the very same phrase in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Meaning, we're defining who these people are. They're not people running after the flesh, but they're people living in the Spirit of God. But the third reason it's not problematic is because in Christ itself communicates the exclusivity of this promise. Meaning it's not, he doesn't say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who go to church. There is no condemnation for those who are good people. There is no condemnation for those who try their best. There is no condemnation for all of humanity. That's not what he says. He defines who he's talking about. He says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, somebody say it with me, in Christ. This is the whole case that he's been bringing together for us, that we're placed not in Adam, but we're now in Christ. First church, Christianity comes with a radically inclusive invitation, meaning the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is goes out to all. All are invited to come. Bad people are 
invited to come. Rebels are invited to come. Rapists and racists are invited to come. Young and old are invited to come. Moral and immoral people are invited to come. It's radically inclusive. Goody two-shoes and hustlers all are invited to come. The doors of the kingdom through Jesus Christ are wide open and anybody in this room or anybody who hears the gospel message is invited to come in. Don't ever not invite somebody because they're too bad or because they don't look the part or don't ever think that you are not invited because of your past or your presence. It's radically inclusive. We're all invited to come. How? The entry fee has been paid. Look to Christ and come in. But that leads, though, to the exclusivity of the promise. Secondly, Christianity is exclusive, meaning this. Not all who are invited come. But for those who do come, this is personal. For those who do come, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. And there is no condemnation here. It's very personal, meaning God loves you. In the very same way that God does not condemn his own son, God doesn't condemn you. Isn't the gospel wonderful? This is the power of the gospel. Don't ever take it for granted. Don't ever take for granted how wonderful this promise actually is. That God doesn't condemn you. Church, as we close, when you are in the heat feeling, let me put it like this, when you are feeling the heat of condemnation, run into the refuge of Christ. This past summer, earlier this summer, I was in Sanibel, Florida, on the beach with my family, and, and it was hot. On the sand there, I'm feeling the burning heat of the sun, and I already had a bad sunburn from Jacksonville Beach, all right? Those of you blessed with more melanin than I, you don't quite understand how this pasty skin burns, all right? Laura understands, amen? I'm fried on the beach, and I'm standing there on, on the sand, the heat's coming down on me, and my wife sets up this, uh, this, this uh, beach canopy, all right, which is a big tent. And I run into the, the, the refuge of this canopy. And under, listen, in the shade of that tent, in the shadow of that wing, all of a sudden, I'm now on vacation. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing what a refuge does for you? It changes your whole experience. And saints, as we are feeling the heat of condemnation, we run 
under the refuge of our Savior and under the shadow of His wing, it changes everything. And so as, as your conscience condemns you, run to the refuge of Christ. As Satan himself condemns you, run to the refuge of Christ. As your past mistakes condemn you, run to the refuge of Christ. As the trauma of, of another's abuse of you condemns you, run into the refuge that is Jesus Christ. And there under the shadow of his wings, everything changes and we are safe. Even if man condemns you. We can be like Perpetua and Felicia, who, who uh, in the year 206 were condemned to death because they refused to deny Jesus. And these two young women were stripped and brought into the middle of this arena with wild beasts. And after the, after the wild beasts did not kill them, they were beheaded. Tertullian, who observed these things, who witnessed this, he said of this, Tertullian was a Christian, he said, he said, they can kill us, they can torture us, they can condemn us. They can grind us to dust. But the more you mow us down, the more we grow, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. You can condemn us, but we will not be overcome. We can stand firm. We can have courage because Jesus said, I will build my church. And we are in him. We're in this refuge. And so church, have courage. They can crush us. They can condemn us. But I'm in Christ. And if God is for me, if God is for me, there is no height, there is no depth that can separate me from the love of Jesus. If God is for me, then who can be against me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible verse. We thank you that this is the conclusion of Romans 1 through 7, that as we crack open the, uh, our, our faith, what we discover is that it is more beautiful than we would have ever imagined. God, I pray that we would live in light of this reality, that we would take confidence in the gospel message and know that you love us, you do not condemn us, because we are in Christ. It's in Jesus' name, amen.